welcome. I'm Dr. Thomas D. Lindley, and you are joining us for the Deep Sea Podcast. And as always, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Jameson. I think that's Dr. Alan John Jameson. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> How are you all? We're good, we're good. We've had our we've had our feed corrupted. Joining us for the special Christmas episode. Guys, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Heather Stewart and I'm a geologist with the British Geological Survey. I'm Johanna Weston. I'm a PhD student at Newcastle. Also known as uh, the Mongolian Battle Hamster. Yes. That's our seafaring name. Hmm. And we have gathered to have a little bit of a Christmas party and a Christmas chat. If this is the first episode you're listening to, stop. <laughs> this, this, this isn't a very good, uh, good intro. Oh, um, gosh. Wow. Oh, gosh. That's a burn. Well, it's, I don't think it's representative, uh, but it will be a little bit of fun because it's Christmas and we all need a little bit of fun at Christmas. So we're having a Christmas party. We're having a few drinks. What is everyone drinking? Alan, what have you got on the go? Uh, generic lager, slightly warm, probably too frothy. makes you burp a lot, but you know, it's cheap. Excellent. That's your signature drink. Yeah. How about you, Heather? Uh, I'm actually on a quarantini. Go on. I thought I'd splash out since it's, you know, special podcast drinks. Is that just a lonely martini? Uh, <laughs> 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 well, you know me, Al, I'm always, I'm always lonely. In apple juice, elderflower and lime. It's quite zesty. Oh, nice. Nice. How about you, Johanna? It's chilly in the house, so I've got a good hot toddy going. Nice. Oh, gosh. Nice. nice. Felt very Christmassy. It is. Got drink um, envy there. How about yourself, Tom? I have got Kraken spiced rum with a little bit of cloudy apple in my copper cup, which apparently makes it taste better. Kraken. It's on brand. So we've gathered a usual band of thieves. Gathered here today. We've gathered here today. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we've gathered here today. We are a little quartet that quite often goes to sea together. We are missing each other, we're missing the open ocean, we're missing adventure. So we're going to have a Christmas party like we're sat on aluminium boxes full of expensive equipment, having a beer at the end of a long day of sciencing. Sometimes in the morning. Sometimes, yeah, if you're on night shift, we will argue that there's nothing wrong with having a beer with breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the floats are the nicest chairs, really. I'm sure that was in the design. Our deep sea floats really make good seats. I think it like hugs every type of butt, really. <laughs> yeah, it's quite Like it really cradles. Yeah. So, does anyone have any Christmassy stories from being offshore? It's a very strange experience to be offshore at Christmas. Do you Heather and I do, and it's a game of two halves. <laughs> right. Does it take a turn? Wow. No, it's two separate stories. Yeah, yeah. I need to right. There's the, there's the Christmas Eve story and the Christmas Day story. I don't know right. what you've driven one. Heather to drink. She's gone to get a drink, so it's it's obviously right. going to be intense. You need a whole jug, right? Finally. So Christmas at sea. Heather was there, and the two of us were working on a ship that we shall remain nameless for reasons you'll figure in a minute. But we went down to Antarctica. Up until about Christmas, we had a reasonably good run. We had a lot of success, a lot of failures. It was it wasn't a particularly uh, memorable cruise i think for science wise but you know we did it it was over christmas and everything i was looking forward to that nationality of that vessel is is uh, a country which is very much everything's on christmas eve not christmas day so that was the big night i was chief scientist at the time they invited us to the big christmas dinner 
and Heather and I got invited to the captain's table. It was all very like, you know, wear a tie and a shirt and Heather had to wear a dress and we had to all look nice. And we went and we had this Christmas dinner and it was brilliant. It was amazing. The captain was great. His officers were great and all the rest of it. And at the end of it, they said, uh, <clears throat> we're going to have a big Christmas party. I was about to say, moment sort of earlier on that day when we were recovering our kit and um, the mate came down onto the back deck in a penny and <laughs> literally having like a spatula in his hand going, the equipment is going to be in on time because dinner is about to be set. Oh, yeah. Like you need to be in <laughs> and off the back deck yeah. because it'll be dinner in an hour. We're like, yeah, 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 it's cool, it's cool. And he's just like, well, it better be. But he's just stood there in his white shirt and his black trousers, but with a cook's apron on. Because also on that vessel, it was sort of traditional that the, the sort of officers got involved in the in the cooking. They sort of took charge and it was the sort of galley team's day off as well. You know, it was kind of like this whole sort of role reversal. So actually it was uh, the captain and the team that were in charge of cooking the Christmas dinner. It was Christmas Eve. We had we had dinner. And it was all good, and they said, "Oh, at the end there's going to be this big party up in the helicopter hangar." So we're like, "Oh, cool!" You know, had a few drinks and all the rest of it. Nice big meal. It was a bit of a weird one because they had said quite explicitly that we had to dress nice and everything else and that. And we went up there, and the only guys on board the ship that were not navy were the IT techs, and we made friends with them, and they lived out in this container on the back deck. Two different parties, basically. And uh, we're up there in the hangar deck and the helicopter deck, and everything's going crazy, and people are drinking and. Actually, it turned out to be a great night because we, so we left and we met up with the IT guys and we ended up five of us or six of us in the dark in the winch cab with three bottles of contraband champagne just slugging out of the bottles watching Antarctica. <laughs> it was brilliant. It turned out to be quite a memorable night. Anyway, so the next day, Christmas Day, it was a bit weird. So Christmas Day was, I don't know about you, Heather, but that was one of the weirdest Christmas days I ever had. It was it was a weird one, wasn't it? It kind of started off so well. Yeah, it started off kind of nice, and we had the lander was in the water from Christmas Eve, when we managed to get it in before Christmas dinner. So we released the lander, and the weather was all right, and it was all looking fairly good. It was one of those ones where, I don't know if, if people are aware about how long it takes to bring in a lander, but it should, from the time the lander surfaces to getting on board, should take, you know, with a reasonably slow approach, 30 minutes. And now we're absolute tops. Right, this is the recovery that ended up taking five and a half hours, and and what happens is that there's a line attached to a winch that goes up through the big A-frame on the back of a ship, and uh, it allows you to then grapple the lander, attach it to that line, and then just pull it in with the winch. You take the floats off, and the last thing on the end of the wire is a lander. Plunk it on deck. The job's a good one. We released the lander, and it was coming up from I think it was five thousand or four thousand meters or yeah. something like that, and the weather got turned, and it got worse. And worse and worse and worse and worse. And we're like, this is really not cool. I mean, it's properly freezing outside, right? It's Antarctica. And it started, I think it was raining at one point or snowing. And the wind was just horrendous. And the ship couldn't really keep its position. And then for some reason, the crew, they just couldn't grapple it. We couldn't get near it to get it. And eventually this guy threw the grapple, got it, brought the mooring line in. But he attached it to the line, but didn't realize the line has to be able to, to run astern of the ship. He got it on the inside. So we ended up coupling to the lander but we couldn't bring it in. It's very complicated, but basically he made an absolute hash of this. So we had to basically cut it free and then try and do the whole thing again. And then by this point, we'd been outside for way too long. And I don't know, I don't know about Heather, but it was, I think for me, it was the, probably the only time I've ever genuinely thought about passing out with cold. Mm. And to bring the lander in, the guys on the ship didn't really want to get involved in the operation. So they chained Heather to one side of the A-frame and chained me to the other side of the A-frame. And we started bringing it in and it seemed like it was working all right. But then the ship just couldn't hold station. It started kept swinging away to the starboard side. And what that what happened then is the mooring line 
basically shot across the deck and pinned Heather to the, the A-frame, right? Like, really, really taut. And I'm like, ah. Uh. What you normally do in that situation is you run over there and you pull on the rope to get it off them. Didn't realise that the chain they chained me to the A-frame one was far too short. So I, I could only get halfway across. And I'm, like, completely helpless going, how's it going? How's, the, how's that working out for you? Being, being sawn in half by a mooring line. It, the whole operation was just mental. It was just mental. And that was Christmas Day. And I remember, I think we eventually got it in. I remember that it was always streaming to me as well. And the sort of way that the, the crew had attached your side of the A-frame, you could not help me at all. You were just, like, throwing me tools. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, yeah. just shouting at you. Yeah, oh, that was just, yeah, there was the moment where we just, we got the lander in, we just stuck a couple of big strops over the top. Just lash it down, we're done. And we walked into the wet lab in there and we sat on these two aluminium boxes, of which we've talked already. And we just sat there and we just looked at each other. And then we looked down at the floor a bit more. But then we sort of looked at each other. We were like, oh, funny old day. You know, I remember it being five and a half hours to bring that in, and because it was Christmas Day, and that particular nation doesn't do Christmas Day. At the end of it, we went down for what was going to be Christmas dinner, and it was basically leftover cold tomato pasta. I'm just sort of sitting there with a bit of stale bread and some tomato pasta, going, "Oh, well, Merry Christmas!" Actually, that was yeah, I was properly cold after that. I think we lost a leg in the lander that time. Was that the same one that hit the hit the stern so hard the actual foot pad fell off? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was that, that was the worst successful recovery we've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> Anything worse than that has normally resulted in a lander going through a propeller. But that was by orders of magnitude the worst. I mean, five and a half hours fighting that thing. Yeah. And it's the, it was only the Rubio lander. It's not a particularly complicated one either. It would have been exhausting anywhere, but the, the cold must have really fatigued you. Yeah, five I mean, hours of fighting that. I mean, properly like X-Force suits on and everything else, but I remember just the wind, just being face into the wind for so long. And just at one point, just thinking my head's going weird. I mean, it just felt like my forehead was frozen. You know, it's just like, this is not cool. Right? I'm still chained to this thing. I'm only half a metre off the stand. Well, we've all we've all done landers now. You know, it's that kind of thing that once it's actually on, you know, the line's on, then it's really, really quick. So you can't kind of go and hide for a bit because once they've tagged it with a grapple, that's it. It's going to be really, really quick. You know, so you kind of need to hang around. So there's an awful lot of just standing around getting really, really cold. Having said that, though, you, you bring up the subject of grappling. Oh no! Oh no! Just just last week, the uh, uh, International Hydrographic Organization of Monaco accepted twelve of our underwater feature names for places in Antarctica. One of those places is called Bitter Deep, and it's called Bitter Deep because it's where uh, I lost quite a lot of gear in an unfortunate accident. It wasn't far off what I just described on that other vessel, but I like to think it's also now commemorates forever a place on Earth where the greatest grapple was ever thrown in the Southern Ocean. I mean, it was dark. It was it was windy as hell. There was horizontal snow coming in. No one could see each other. No one could hear each other. Ship couldn't get anywhere near it. And, you know, only Superman would have made that throw. Right? <laughs> but unfortunately, Superman Superman doesn't exist. So what's the next? What's the, what's the next best thing? Alan. Yeah, and I threw that thing, and I got it within inches. I mean, I could still relive it. Do you hear the clink? I feel like we need to get Captain Dan Cool here to verify the story because I was there. He was actually on my right side. And Stu Buckle was on the bridge, and over the over the radio there was just one word from the bridge, and that was legend. And it <laughs> echoed. Yeah, it was said like that, just in that tone, and that said everything. And I'm like, I know, I don't want any praise. I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah. But there. Right. <laughs> For the benefit of the listeners, we're all quite nerdy, but the way our equipment works means that you have to throw a grappling hook. And there's not many places in life nowadays where you get to throw a grappling hook, and it's become quite competitive. 
No, not for some of it. It is a beautiful thing when you do it right. There's a, there's a whole knack to it. It would be competitive if Alan would let anybody else have a goal. That's true. Ooh, ouch. You can always go and practice in your own time. I think I did a good few Christmases offshore because it was... When I used to work in industry, you kind of you pay your dues basically. You do you do a lot of Christmases at the beginning, and I think I've talked already about uh, the Christmas in Aberdeen and the the local chaplain sort of coming around, and that was being quite nice. Anyone who knows me knows I'm super keen on Christmas, so I I do pack an advent calendar, and it's quite it's quite fun in you know the the rough tough offshore life to then pull an advent calendar out of your bag. Still defiantly did. As well as the Christmas clothing. Yes, I do pack multiple Christmas jumpers. I'll finish this story first, but yeah, we, we should talk about Christmas on, uh, on Pressure Drop. Yeah. But I think one I'll always remember is, basically, we knew a, a big storm was coming in. We knew weather was coming in. We still had to finish the job. We basically pulled out all the stops. We Everyone on the vessel worked incredibly hard to finish this survey just in time for Christmas. And we came into port... And I think it was the 23rd and, you know, everyone was relieved, you know, they, they were warning their families back at home that they might not make it, but everyone's going to make it for Christmas. And I can remember walking down the gangway and my boss is there at the bottom and I, it didn't have to say anything. The, the, the fact he was there, I already knew what the conclusion was going to be. And so on the 23rd of December, after absolutely wiping ourselves out to finish this survey, I went off that boat and immediately onto another one for six weeks. They are so close, so close to getting home. <laughs> so close yet so far. Oh, yeah. No, that was a tough one. That was that was one of the worst parts of that because it was quite, you know, I could get 24 or 48 hours notice and then be away for six weeks. You can be out there thinking you're, you're going to get home next week for like six or seven of, of those weeks so it was always like oh maybe i'm getting home maybe i'm getting home and this one was just the epitome of that because it was hey we've done it we've made it for christmas and then to be turned around and straight back out again oh it was tough it wasn't officially a christmas but we had the christmas build up off puerto rico wasn't it heather yeah it could have been a christmas i think there was what like we got back home the 23rd it was close wasn't it <laughs> It's all about getting the dive in. But then it kept on getting delayed and delayed. So then there was a chance that it was going to be over Christmas. A bit of context was that we were all involved in um, the Five Deeps expedition. And the first sort of proper one of that was the Puerto Rico Trench, which took place in December 2018. And there was a proper moment where I remember we were packing to go. And I think I texted you. And I was just like, I've got some like Christmas t-shirts and stuff for I was going to pack them. And Tom was like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And it was sort of Christmas jumper day while we were offshore. And Tom and I, Julie, sort of rocked up on the back deck with our attire and things. And everyone was just looking at us and said, what are you doing? Freaks. <laughs> it was really bizarre. But we did fully deck out in our Christmas attire and then realised that we're part of a Discovery documentary. I mean, yours is like a skin tight shirt, Tom. So everyone was looking at you for a number of reasons. It was the climate. So the only Christmassy thing I had was like a Christmas rash vest, which, yes, was a little bit tight. And then, Heather, yours was Christmas T Rex, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was a ski Rex. It was the ski Rex. Mm -hmm. So we just looked like we were unwell. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're recording we... off oh, sorry. Takes it out from that trip. You know, we will be in Christmas gear, definitely. Yes, every time. Yep. So what better way to bring in the festive period and try and blend together the festivities with deep sea science and rock and roll and 
madness and high energy. But it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Marvel, who are in fact the barons of high energy rock and roll, who are joining us today from Sweden. So, hello, Marvel. Hello. <laughs> there you are. Marvel are. <laughs> For anyone who, who 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 didn't catch that on one of our podcasts, are the the rock and roll band who wrote the Hadle Zone Express, which caught Tom's eye one day, and we wrote to them and said, "Could we use your music on our podcast?" And they graciously said yes. So here they are, in person, kind of digitally. Yeah. First question: Why why the Hadle Zone Express? Why does a, why do the barons of high energy rock and roll write songs about the Hadle Zone? <laughs> well, was it uh, always fascinating by deep sea and shipwrecks and stuff like that? We thought about ACDC's Highway to Hell and we thought we'd re- reverse the process instead <laughs> of, yeah, that's our take on it. But we're going lower than anyone has done before. That's, so that's the spirit. <laughs> down into the abyss. Yeah, down into the abyss. But it was a, a, an attempt to write a cheerful song with a really dark message and I can't imagine anything darker than being down there, but you can tell us firsthand, I guess. Yeah, it, it is dark. I mean, it's, it's, there's absolutely no light whatsoever, and it is a little bit creepy, especially when you're just watching the landscape unfold and you know in the headlights. So it is a bit like driving around in the dark. What's the creepiest thing you've seen? Creepiest thing? Oh, the creepy stuff tends to be quite shallow. Actually, the deeper you get, the, the, the surprisingly simple things become, and if anything, they look a bit sort of bored. <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything feels old, doesn't it? It feels yeah. like you're you're in a very static, still place. Yeah. So it's mindfulness in a way. Yeah. I mean, if you get over the fact that you're in a metal ball that could instantaneously implode and kill you, if you can relax a little, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful experience. <laughs> the claustrophobia is. Yeah, I mean, if you get you know get, get the whole thing about the fact that someone's just locked you in this ball, and once you're on the bottom, even if you wanted to get out, you have to wait three and a half hours for you to surface. You know, if you can get your yeah. mindset yes. around that, then yeah, I recommend it as a thera- therapy. <laughs> it's, it's like an isolation tank, but with a little bit of extra fear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And and our way of relaxing, I guess, is playing rock music. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do quite a lot of that. See as well. I must. When this whole lockdown thing is over, we're going to have to have a, a crossover episode where me and the crew from our, our vessel come and visit. Our first officer, Fraser Retson, is an amazing guitar player. He plays on the on the on the top of the ship, and he's amazing. Can can we come and come and play in your submarine? Yeah. It's, I say that as if it's my submarine, but yeah, sure. <laughs> of course you can. So, Tom, you had questions about the visual imagery or, or as well, didn't you? Yeah, I, re- I really liked the album artwork. Were you guys sort of heavily involved with that? Did you work with the artist? And this is your this is your vision of the of the Hadel Zone. Yeah, we had a lot of input. We came up with the concept and uh, gave a lot of input to it. The way it always works with us with art, we have pretty vivid and detailed ideas on what we want to do and then we try to uh, sketch it up I guess we have something that looks like a, a four year old has done something <laughs> and, then, and then we find an artist who can do that. We did a, like a mood board with the colors and the inspiration. <clears throat> we had the idea of, of a train, an old old steam engine going down the depths. We also wanted to have our personas, our stage personas in there somehow so they were they're like tagging along the train. Uh, like, how do you almost... say those those things in Lord of the Rings? The ring wraiths. Yeah, there was kind of inspired by that. So some kind of shadowy figures that follows the, the train. I really like that you're on the outside. You're not you're not driving it. You're No, of... we're just overwatching <laughs> <laughs> making sure it goes straight down to the bottom. <laughs> 
What what I really liked about the song was was normally when you hear music that's got something to do with the sea, it tends to be this really plinky plinky, tranquil yeah. sort of moody type music, and you guys oh. are just like, no, <laughs> that's not happening this time. Can I play you something? Just yeah, go quick. for it. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, uh, Bamse, a Swedish cartoon character. <laughs> Where's when this going? Uh, <laughs> it's a really famous bear, but every time he goes under the sea, it's like. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> so all you hear for four hours, Alan. <laughs> You'd be mental by then. <laughs> He's usually down there for shorter periods of time. <laughs> My other rock and roll story is actually when we're on the bottom of the sea, uh, me and the guy, guy Victor, who, who drives a submarine, we often play a song at the bottom. And... When we were at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, we played Master of Puppets. Which I thought, oh, uh, <laughs> you just imagine all these little sea creatures have been down there for millions of years and almost complete silence, and then suddenly there's just Master of Puppets coming from nowhere. <laughs> like, oh, what the hell is that? It's like a religious experience. There's this big glowing wow. ball just blasting out rock. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But if you get the idea of changing tune, you know which one to pick, right? To be honest, it's on the list. In fact, it's top oh. of the list. So next time we're going down, that's definitely getting played. Oh, fantastic! Ooh, yeah, that's a that's a bucket list idea. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've got, we've got like to do that. Down there with you. It's like uh, I'm speechless. <laughs> what was that? The uh, fantastic deep sea movie with Dave Murray. Not oh, Dave Murray. Bill Murray. Bill Murray, perhaps. Isn't Dave Murray from Iron Maiden? Yeah. <laughs> Drinking beer, that's playing good. a solo down in the deep sea. <laughs> you know. Fantastic. But what was the name of the movie? It's Bill Murray, and it's the uh, the Life Aquatic. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, that's what we do. That's that's exactly what we do. That's that's just like a day in the life of, of Tom and I. It's frighteningly <laughs> accurate. There's a lot of in jokes that I'm yeah. not sure non marine biology folks are get. It's it's worryingly true. Is that your favourite sea movie? Who's doing the interview here? I've <laughs> <laughs> seized control. I've seized control of the yeah. broadcast. This is why we call him the king. So what's We're next for Marvel then? What are you up to now? What's next? I mean, obviously, this year has not been great for gigging, but... This is it. I mean, this podcast will be our final... <laughs> <laughs> is this we the first announcement? <laughs> we can't go lower than this, so... Can I make a really bad joke about how you guys are already regular mask wearers? <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I thought that was rubbish. <laughs> that was the delivery was to actually be just self-aware of the joke uh, yeah i was going to say the joke but i couldn't it was just too you, bad especially given the mask cover the wrong half of the face oh <laughs> so, you're not going to give me like clean audio it's just going to be you saying how bad a joke is and then not saying it yeah <laughs> yeah i failed out the last minute as podcast gold does yeah yeah that'll be easy to edit <laughs> <laughs> yep and we actually we have uh, regular meetings where we just Talk about what to do next, and talk about artwork or, or song ideas, and that's a good way to stay sane. <laughs> to just talk to someone, <laughs> it's luxury these days. Yeah, you, you're kind of starved for communication and uh, talking about things you're interested in. Do you find that you get sort of almost creepily friendly? Like I'm so <laughs> glad to see another person. I'm just I'm really creepy these yeah, you days. Don't want, you I don't want to let on that. go. Like, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had that. I've forged a really good relationship with our Amazon delivery driver. And I'm not I'm not joking. He gave us a Christmas card. <laughs> Does this mean as soon as lockdown's over, though, he means nothing to you anymore? You just ditch him? Like... No, I, I think I made a man friend. Really? I think, uh, yeah. 
if if we wrote some other kind of music, that would be a perfect song title. I think I made a man friend. Yeah, <laughs> it is right there. Do you imagine, imagine the artwork there, just Tom chatting to the Amazon guy on the doorstep? Who's <laughs> <laughs> like paid by the package and really has yeah. a tight deadline. It's like, uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh, can I go now? But actually, the, the thing I miss the most about being out playing, except for playing, is that you just happen to meet people all the time uh, mm. that you normally don't meet, mm. especially if you're a clerk kind of guy normally and sit by the computer doing work. It's so refreshing to be out meeting people from all parts of society. Yeah, I, I, I find my, my body language is letting me down now because I do so many Zoom calls. Normally, you would go to a meeting and you and you sort of sit there and you're being professional and you're you're chatting and articulating <laughs> yourself really well. Now, now I'm just I've got my legs up on the desk and I'm just swinging on my chair, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, come on, hurry up! I want a cup of tea." <laughs> I thought you were one of those eleven percent that uh, don't have any pants on. Well, it depends what time of day is. Dave Murray time. Dave Murray time. <laughs> Does Dave Murray not wear pants? <laughs> He's famous for that, you know. Dave No Pants Murray from Iron Maiden. <laughs> Behind those pants, he doesn't have any pants. We're all naked under our clothes. No, but uh, I think we have something in common that we are nerds. We are music nerds and you are sea nerds. And, sea nerds, uh, I like that. And, uh, you know, it's funny. When we come to a gig, people think, who are those clerks? <laughs> <laughs> they don't expect us to go up and play and when we start playing they are always amazed by the energy uh, but it's uh, we are kind of how do you say odd outcasts Outcast, <laughs> <Within yeah>. the... <laughs> the, 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 the phrase that has been used for Tom and I is uh, we're not like the other boys and girls <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was exactly why we got in touch and we asked to use your track, because there's so many science educational podcasts, and they all start with the same sort of, sit down, kids, I'm going to lecture you. But we just wanted to start with, you know, hell yeah, Hadle Zone Express, some some pumping (laughs) guitars. Yeah, this is how we do science. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, that's our kind of deep sea guys. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, guys. Thanks for coming on for a chat. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Fun, and we will catch up with you somewhere in Europe or wherever at some point when the world gets itself back on its feet again. I feel like you're an untapped resource. Actually, you're, you know, fresh. <laughs> you're not jaded. No, you're not jaded. Exactly. You're dead right. You know that Puerto Rico job was the first one that you did. And then you went straight into, you know, oh, I'm only popping away for 10 days. And then I'm just going to stay on for another, whatever, four weeks. So actually, you're just the person to sort of talk about what it's actually like whenever you're away. This this bubble that we've all been sort of reminiscing around and stuff. I mean, I think it's a lot like camping in a way. So if you've ever been, like I spent a lot of time like backcountry Alaska getting rid of your watches because it doesn't matter anymore and you're sharing a tent with two other people and having to pee and poop outside so I've got like a lot of that experience so in a boat it was it's a similar sort of thing where your world just collapses in on that small space except with indoor toilets yeah and better drinks (laughs) it's not the threat of bears well not the funny kind anyway I mean I since I've only been on the five deeps one, I think the weirdest part about that was also having the camera crew there the whole time. So it's probably weird to just be on a boat and it feel intense and small, but with the camera crew there and high drama, 
it felt very much like a reality show at times. And so I think that makes the world... I mean, I love a good reality show. So it was just great to, I don't know, be in on the drama and gossiping. But I suppose part of it was that we were kind of involved in the drama as well. Actually, all of us here. You were the drama. Yeah, yeah, we were kind of involved in the drama. We were the drama. And I think I haven't done a pure science cruise since. And I think it might be a bit refreshing to go back to that where you don't have what are you doing now? Is there a risk that something might break and somebody might die? You're not mic'd up. Yeah, all mic'd up. Oh God, I remember the first time I was mic'd up and then I needed to wee. I remember <laughs> going to like the sound person who's this amazing woman called Tamara and be like, I'm really sorry, but you know, I know that I'm all mic'd up, but it's been like four hours and I really need to wee now. You're going to hear all that. And she was like, oh no, it's okay. You're all in Bluetooth. I can turn you all on, off, on and off remotely. You know, for hours. And I was like... Seriously. (laughs) I mean, my first time being mic'd up was going out to Puerto Rico and I was sick. Then they were wanting me to talk about what it was setting up all of the gear and so getting ready and also the experience of being sick and tired and jet lagged. I was like, this is a great interview. (laughs) I'm really loving this first experience. I think what was disconcerting to me with having the the TV guys is that they were all really nice, you know, as well, you know, so then whenever the cameras weren't on, you know, you were sitting having, you know, like your meals with them and stuff. And like you were saying, Jana, you know, you were living with them as well in the same cabin. They were all lovely. So then you got to know them and then you relax your guard a bit and then all of a sudden the cameras... And that's when they catch you. Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, so how does it feel to be so tired? And deep down you're going, well, it's because you were snoring last night that I'm really tired. <laughs> but I can't say that. Yeah, it was really, really bizarre. Yeah, I remember the, the sort of same, I'm sure Tom and Al would, would agree. It was it was really strange sort of having everything out there. You know, things that you would sort of normally internalise that have suddenly been like, so, you know, so-and-so's just walked out of the room. How do you feel about that? Having the bad days, well, basically you have to externally vo- vocalise them. We had... Do you remember the the dunking transducer, the cable oh, frayed? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we had a single means of communicating with our equipment. And this was our own equipment, not Five Deep's equipment. And the cable had strained and frayed. Basically, this subsea microphone we used to communicate with our lander. So we send a coded burst of sound telling it to release its ballast and come up to the surface. And it responds saying, OK, I've done that. I'm on my way. And we're working at such incredible depths. There's four five hours between saying that and it it coming up and it wasn't working properly it wasn't it, the code was getting garbled and we weren't getting a response and so we were trying to patch it we we're trying to repair it we we're desperately trying to talk to to our equipment and we were getting nothing back and we just had to hammer the command over and over again basically shout into the deep sea please please come back and we were getting nothing in response and that's stressful enough you know this is this is our whole science budget stuck on the on the bottom of the seabed you know i'm freaking out i'm a worrier anyway and then there's a camera and i know i'm already mic'd up and it's like and what does this mean and what's happening and and is this your whole science budget blown is your is your equipment lost and i'm just like you're you're saying out loud all the things that are in my head <laughs> And I'm I'm sort of dealing with the problem in the immediacy. I'm not ready to deal with it in the wider impact. <laughs> it was really that. intense. There was the moment, wasn't there, where, well, I'd been up top sort of trying to spot it in the dark. In some ways, it was lucky that it was dark because it's got the beacon on it, um, a blinking light. 
And, you know, we spotted it. You know, the radio command had gone out, you know, so it was all good. You know, the vessel was starting to maneuver to recover and stuff. And I came way down the stairs because, you know, I'd been up top trying to spot it. You guys had been downstairs and sort of, you know, living hell with the cameras in your face. Of course, all the cameras had raced up to capture this little blinking light in the dark. And I came down the stairs and I was just like, Tom, I'll just come in. But of course, it had to be silent because we were all mic'd up, you know, and you were just miming being sick. <laughs> and sort of reiterating yourself, you know, it was just like, oh my God, I'm so impressed. But you couldn't say that out loud. You just had to sort of mime it. It was like, you know, charades gone wrong. <laughs> oh, oh, it was such relief knowing that it it had heard us. It just hadn't been able to respond or, or we hadn't heard the response. But no, you're right. There was a really honest hug. Yeah. And it, it wasn't like, ah, ironic hug. It was a proper, it was me, you and Al, wasn't silent. it? Silent. I just remember that it all had to be absolutely silent because <laughs> we're all mic'd up and we didn't want to give them any hint that something emotional might be happening down the <laughs> Yeah, before four cameras <laughs> <Yeah>. run round. <laughs> Let us have a hug in peace. I I, I'm sure that the sound take was experienced enough to know that's three people hugging in overalls. That's what that sound is. I can hear the polyester rubbing. <laughs> oh, that was that was a really human little moment. That was quite special. <laughs> we should lay out the official story of Sausage Fest. Yeah. So Sausage Fest is a game we play at sea. The idea is that you measure the length of every sausage you eat for the entire duration of the expedition. And at the end you add up how many sausage engines you've taken on the job and then you mark out on the deck and everyone has to stand at the point of their total cumulative sausage intake. Do you want me to elaborate more? We started this on a German ship, which is an ideal place to start Sausage Fest. It kind of spiralled out of control. It really spiralled out of control because they were then begging us to stop the game because we're messing up the stores. We're eating more sausages than, <laughs> than yeah. they budgeted for. Sausage, so it was three of us playing it. Myself and Tom and one of my master students. And the highlight of that one was the day that Tom ate 42 inches in one sitting. And not just, we're not talking little thin frankfurters here. You're thinking, you know, big heavy girth stuff. Proper German sausages. Yeah. 42 inches to the point he was sweating salt and looking pretty ill. And then we did, we did it again on the, uh, the New Zealand vessel. And that's where I, me getting into That's where Heather first joined in. Yeah. But that we, we had breakfast sausages every day and ended up started stealing them from the, from the breakfast buffet <laughs> and then wrapping them up and saving them for later to get a few inches in in the afternoon, you know? Oh. There's, there's a lot of falling outs about the rules. Oh. Yeah. There's been some real arguments over Sausage Fest. The real serious one, it, it almost it almost gone too far when we went back on the German ship and there was about six of us playing it. And uh, we were up to like hundreds of inches of sausage over this thing. In fact, between six of us, the grand total at the end was 2,500 inches of sausage we went through. On that vessel, I love the fact that the steward started patrolling the buffet whenever there was sausages on. on. Yeah, but that was, that was a legendary one where our Danish friend managed to reach the fabled 100 inches in one day. <laughs> he ate 100 inches of sausage and he looked so ill, it was unreal. <laughs> and then, so then the rules came out. So one of our, our other Danish friends, who's actually Austrian, none, nobody's a fan of the German white sausage because it's not very nice. So to get sausage inches in, he brought the game into disrepute by eating the sausage but not the skin. 
So he ate 40 inches of sausage without the skin. So we give him a choice. He either had to then forfeit the 40 inches or eat 40 inches of just the skin. But he swore that that was the, that was the correct that way to eat them. Can we? Yep. Doesn't matter. I like us as like cultural imbeciles. You know, we're essentially eating bananas with the skin on and then going, no, no, it only counts if you do this. It wasn't my decision. I emailed the independent adjudicator to Sausage Fest. I emailed him from off the coast of Chile in New Zealand and said, look, this is what's happened. What are we going to do? And he wrote back saying he either needs to eat 40 inches of skin or forfeit the 40 inches of sausage fest. And he forfeited, which was disappointing because I was looking forward to watching him eat 40 inches of sausage. One of my favourite ever sort of offshore photos is at the end of that trip. And this all just lining up all of the all of the people that were taking part, standing next to how many inches we'd watched, and just all of the other people on board just looking at us going, why? It's despairing. It's so gross. I, I worked out our cumulative two and a half thousand inches. With another two weeks, we would have eaten the length of the ship. That was a challenge as well, wasn't it? We, we wanted to eat the boat. We tried. And then we realised yeah. it's a bit big for that. <laughs> One of these yeah, days. We haven't played it in a while. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the most impressive part about this is that Tom doesn't eat meat. Yeah. I save it all up. I'm sure. He does when he plays sausage first. Yeah, meat all but offshore, like, I was shocked the first time I saw Tom eating meat. It just seemed so unnatural. That, that's offshore Tom. That's sea Tom. Yeah. Probably explain that. I'm aspiring vegan, vegetarian most of the time on land. But at sea, the brakes very much come off to the point that I competitively eat sausage. <laughs> <laughs> so just undo all my good work. But that's how I train. That's how I get the sort of lust for sausage ready for competition time. I mean, you just binge out on meat and then aren't able to have any on land. <laughs> yeah, due to my, my own strange internal logic and rules. You're a complicated man. I know that German ship when we were crossing the, the Indian Ocean and it was very long. It was like six or seven weeks or something like that. And we had, I think, a five-day window quite early on to do what we had to do. And then we had basically had to sit on the ship for a month or so. And it was really, really boring. Well, this is when Sausage Fest took It off. was the original Sausage Fest cruise, yeah. Never let us get bored. You won't like it. Yeah, yeah, we're not good when we're bored. We're good when we're working. But when we're, when we're not working, we're not like the other boys and girls. Uh, we don't necessarily make the most of our time. So anyway, there was a whole bunch of geologists on board. And they were dredging all the way from Fremantle to Sri Lanka. And they would run a dredge every day and there'd be rocks in it and stuff like that. And they were smashing them up and cutting them in this rock saw thing. And after a while, I got bored and started to get obsessed with the noise of this rock saw that sprays water everywhere. And you have to go in this booth with all this gear on and cut rocks in half. And I was just like, I want to go at that. It was calling to you. It was really bothering you. You couldn't focus on anything else. Yeah, you could hear it. It was like saying, oh, use me. So eventually I popped my head in. I pretended I was interested in geology when I wasn't really. And I was just like, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah, it's all uh, it's all like 50 shades of brown and that, you know. And I, can, I said, can I have a go with your rocks on? And they're like, why? I'm like, because I'm really, I'm so bored. I really want to saw something in half. Like, really saw it in half. Tom, where are you? And I said, yeah, sure. So, uh, so yeah, so I started for a couple of days, if not a week, maybe possibly two weeks. I can't remember now. It was, that, it was, it was um, a difficult time. Anyway, I cut loads of rocks in half and I got really good at it and I started shaping them and everything else. And it's just this noisy, horrible machine that sprays water everywhere. And anyway, at the end of it all, I mean, I did, I did a reasonably good job and had a bit of a laugh and so on and it was something to do. And at the end of it, there's this big Russian guy who was, he was one of the head geologists and he, he came up to me with this big rock that I'd cut in two and he says, you know what, mate? Take that as a souvenir. I'm like, oh, thanks, man. What is it? And he explained what it was. I can't remember. Fifty Shades of Brown. Because like, oh, that's great. Munzel would know. It was a really nice piece. It was just a nice piece and a nice, really beautifully cut section to it. And I was walking at the door and he says, oh, yeah, and uh, before you go, don't leave it next to your bed. I'm like, why not? He goes, it's full of uranium. 
as I walked out the door, I said, thanks very much. And as soon as I was out of eye shot, I just tossed it over the side of the boat. I was like, oh, I'm having that. I don't know if that's a geology joke or what, but yeah. Well, it's not a joke. It's a frigging tragedy. <laughs> Why? Would you rather I slept with uranium? Well, there's many things to comment on that, but um, uh, yeah, no, you could have stashed it in your aluminium trunk and brought it home. I would have loved it. How would he have done at the airport? Do they not sweep for things yeah. like that? Ah, you'll be fine. <laughs> you'll be fine. They don't know what Beagles, it is. Beagles, Beagles. Right, I'm going, for, I'm going for a wee. In that time, I think, Tom, you should explain what Foot First was. Oh, again, we shouldn't be allowed to get bored. <laughs> so, drunk on the success of Sausage Fest, we looked for other projects, competitive outlet, shall we say, and there were a lot of microbiologists on board, and they had prepared agar plates to grow their cultures on. And we talked them into giving us one, basically. And we drew a line down the middle of it. And we wanted to see whose foot bugs were stronger, basically. Me and Alan, very ceremoniously, with the help of a microbiologist, took swabs from each of our feet. And we inoculated each one side of this uh, of this Petri dish. And we decided to let our foot microbes fight it out to see whose was stronger. Like I said, we've been at sea for very long. And this seemed like a good idea at the time. So yeah, we watched our foot fungus grow and attack each other. We had several rules for victory. So Alan's crossed the halfway line first. They were very rapid expanders. But then we stowed it away with the gear and transported it back home in a hot container for six weeks. And we're very excited to see the results. My side had just exploded. Oh, it had like towers and structures. It looked like a tiny city. So yeah, Alan won the battle, but I'd say that my foot fungus won the war. And we've got lovely photos of it. And I still have Footfest, actually. It kind of dried out. It ran out of resources, but uh, we still have it. Yeah, it's still around. It's disgusting. We should feed it. We should give it something. We should give it an offering. Yeah. And of course, it's the, it's the symbol of our little group in our chat. It is. On our little WhatsApp group, it is a picture of... My foot fungus. Other group chats are available. <laughs> a lot of these stories, I think there's a an element of trying to explain to the listeners kind of what going boat is. It's such a little microcosm. You know, you've got all these people that are suddenly thrown into this really small area. They've got to live, work together. You know, all their social time is spent together. All their work time is spent together. Break times. It's just, there's no respite from these people. And there is an element that you, you go boat you drift. You drift off the societal norm. Yeah, whether it's sort of in-jokes or crazy experiments like Footfest, you know, I mean, it's such a strange, strange experience. You never do that on land. People don't understand. At times that I've come home from offshore and explained to them what it's like or what is what has been funny when we've been offshore, and they just look at you like, well, why? I, I've tried to explain, like, the in-jokes that form offshore, and they just... They don't make sense on land. You need like six or seven weeks that led up to that joke being funny. And without that, you just sound mad. What are your things that you struggle with when first coming back onto land? I think it's how futile everything is. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Lighthearted podcast. What, what beer was that, Alan? What beer number turned you melancholy? Three. Three. Okay. Now we've got sad Alan for a bit. Go on. Talk about the futility of life. It's just like, no, it's like yesterday we were in a bar with Australian Special Forces telling them how the night before we'd been arrested in a tuk-tuk. And then mm -hmm. it's just a benign, banal even rubbish that gets spoken on everyday life and you realise just how pointless it all is. There we go. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> I was always fascinated by land sickness. I didn't realise that could be a thing. And if, it, if you've been off for a long time, 
you sway. I, I can remember walking down a high street and swaying as I'm trying to sort of navigate people. And again, I've not had to navigate people. I've not had to navigate crowds. It feels quite overwhelming. And then when we're all out that night sort of having farewell drinks in the bar, we're all swaying, but we're all synchronized to the vessel. And we're sort of swaying in unison. And I quite like that. Like Maybe that's a bit Maybe that's the sort of symbolism of going boat in that you've actually all synchronized with this rhythm and you've all still got it internally for a little while, for a couple of days after you come. And you can feel quite sick, actually. You can get quite land sick. What are the names for it? Is it it's land sickness, dock rock? I get land sickness worse than sea sickness, actually. Don't know why. But everyone's different there. Here's a story I'd like you to tell. Alan once talked me and Heather into being sick. That's true, yeah. Yeah. That's one it. of your proudest moments. You, you, were, to, you, you were ecstatic, you actually, on the podcast. No, don't don't relive it. I just think it's impressive. <laughs> There's some stories you can tell people who are maybe feeling a bit queasy that you know. I tell you, painting pictures. Yeah, just give it a give it a try. See how quick you can make Tom puke. No, I think I think you have to you have to be in the zone. You have to be a little bit queasy first, and then some idiot comes along and starts talking about certain things. Uh, no, I won't. I won't even go for idiot. I'll say supposed friend. Okay, so <laughs> supposed friend, friend and well, mentor will smell vulnerability, and will then just turn the screws. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, th- it's things like when people are at their worst and most vulnerable and feeling already queasy. It's maybe not the best time to talk about the uh, the spittoons and the elevators of a big hotel I was staying at in Shanghai and thinking about <laughs> the poor guy who's got to empty the spittoon at the end of the day. You know, stories like that are probably, you know, I should I should save them for another time. Yeah. And maybe I, I, I don't pretend it was accidental. Yeah, I was about to say, no, there was nothing sort of accidental about any of those stories. All of it was premeditated. A bit of context, we'd sailed out into what, like, well, I mean, it wasn't like hurricane or anything, but it was pretty rough. We hadn't got our sea legs yet, so it was a pretty choppy one to go into. Yeah, we'd sailed straight into it, and the vessel itself was known for having just a slightly strange motion as well. And I mean, on the whole, I don't get seasick. And um, no, you're just weak stomached. I, no, I'd argue that not weak, because I am a a champion vomiter, as we've all discovered. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm learning more about it. Turns out, when I was a child, I spent two days in hospital just so that medical professionals could see me vomit because they didn't believe what my mother was saying. Oh and uh, yeah, I, I've just I've I've just been a, a class vomiter for my whole just life. And of course, you vomit, you sound like a Russian Alsatian. Well, we personified it. We've given it a name. So we're four to a room. We're really, really cramped, and we share a toilet. When I'm sick, I am really, really sick. Uh, so I can make it to the toilet. I can be sick, dead on target. I can still get the ceiling. I don't. I don't know what it is about me, but I'm just sick with such incredible force. And so that horrible noise became Sasha, the German Shepherd. Uh, and it turns out it is hereditary, and I've passed it on to my son, huh. who can do the same thing. It's I'll just say, oh, I recognise that. I've never heard anything like it. I mean, I've, I've listened to you vomit a lot actually over the years. I've laid in my bed and just <laughs> with a big smile on my face, thinking, <laughs> "Here's Sasha barking away. I've missed you, Sasha." <laughs> You know, I'm have this weird relationship with this imaginary Russian dog that doesn't exist, and it's actually you. Uh, yeah, I thought that was how everyone was sick. And well, till we we talked, I just thought that was that was how people were sick. You don't have to try and destroy the toilet bowl. You don't have to try and attack <laughs> it and kill it as if it was a drug smuggler. <laughs> I just can't stand Christmas. I really just, I really just dislike it. So I many love levels. It. Love it. Yeah. I'm indifferent. Neutral middle ground.
It's a waste of a good holiday. That's how I'll end the show. I'll just put that bit in there. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry <laughs> <laughs> Christmas to all and to all a good night. It's just a kind of regular Alan Rant, though. I mean... <laughs> <laughs>